How do you grow a company despite a recession? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm Greg Gallant, and today my guest is Jeff Stewart. Jeff is a prolific entrepreneur and angel investor. Most notably, he's the founder of Mimeo, a company that lets you do everything you could do at Kinko's through your computer. So you can print any kind of document, goes to their fulfillment center, they print it, they mail it to you, they FedEx it to you, they get it to you on time. It's a company that's done very well. It's uh, According to Inc. Magazine, it had $55.4 million in revenue in 2007, and according to Jeff, has 650 employees. He started that company in 1998. So as you can imagine, by the time they got everything built, economic situations had got much worse, but Mimeo survived nonetheless. Jeff talks about that. Jeff has also started several other companies, some of which worked, some of which didn't. And he tells a story of his success and failures. In addition, as a treat, he talks about his new business, Urgent Career, and for the first time, announces his funding on our show. Enjoy. Jeff, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Jeff, I know you've started a bunch of businesses, but before I get into them, just tell me, how, how did you originally get your entrepreneurial inclination? When did, you, when did you decide in your mind you wanted to be starting businesses? Well, I guess it was as, as a kid. Um, my, uh, my neighbor needed some leaves raked, and uh, they paid me for it, and I was hooked. It just uh, seemed like an exciting way to uh, to make a living. So, so you started with raking leaves, and then um, how'd that kind of boil up inside you? Like, when when did it start to kind of uh, to show itself on a larger scale? Well, I, I guess all through uh, through uh, high school, I was um, uh, doing odd jobs. I had a lawn mowing business, and. Uh, uh, um, always knew that I wanted to, to start businesses and figured that uh, I would wait till I graduated college before starting, um, although there's nothing a matter with uh, Bill Gates's Bill Gates's approach of uh, starting sooner, but I wanted to uh, get college behind me before I started. And where'd you go? I went to Rensselaer. Uh, actually, uh, chose Rensselaer because I was very interested in engineering. I, had, I thought that the way you start a business was you invent something and then you build a business around it. So I talked to the dean and told him I wanted to, to learn how to start businesses, and he recommended that uh, uh, that I learn about technology but actually study business. So I studied business and uh, graduated in 1991 um, and uh, was looking at two, two uh, jobs. One was at Microsoft and one was as a management consultant. And again, uh, uh, knowing I wanted to start a business, I uh, was concerned that if I started working for Microsoft, I would uh, not want to leave uh, with the option program. This was back when uh, you know, uh, the Microsoft stock just kept going up, and it, was, it became very painful to leave. So I thought um, management consulting would be a great way to, uh, to, to learn about business, and uh, I was pleased with that. I spent four years living, literally living out of a suitcase, got to see a lot of different companies and how they, how they operate. And uh, in uh, late 1994, on a project for the, for the NASDAQ, was looking at technologies that might impact them, got to play around with the uh, World Wide Web, and uh, was on this site called yahoo.edu and uh, saw that there was uh, uh, 8,000 businesses there. I thought this was pretty interesting. Came back a day later and there were 16,000. So I realized that something big was going on uh, on the Internet, got started digging into that, and by January of uh, 
1995, started my first, I would say, big real company, uh, Square Earth, uh, which did internet consulting and extranets for uh, large corporations. So tell me the moment where you decided, I'm done with this consulting, uh, you know, no more paycheck, I'm going to start my own thing. The, the exact moment was um, uh, when my my business partner said he would he would go in uh, and do it with me. Uh, you know, he was uh, uh, had two, two partners, and um, uh, one of them uh, was at Solomon Brothers deploying extranets for them. And uh, he uh, we, we, he said that um, he was committed and uh, was was excited about this. And at that moment, I knew, you know, I quit, quit the next day. Uh, he's an incredibly smart person, Dave Utendale. And I realized that with, uh, with him on board, although the business model may change, and although, uh, although uh, we'll have lots of, of hard work ahead of us, with someone with that type of work ethic and raw brain power, eventually we would succeed. And how do you go about, you know, when you both quit, did you, did you have the idea kind of fully formed in your head, or did you just know you wanted to start something together? No, not not at all. Uh, we had an idea. We were going to do a uh, Yahoo like directory, but we were actually going to print it out. We were going to call it the Multimedia Resource Guide. We, we were going to call it the Web, some sort of web directory, but no one knew what the web was. Uh, so uh, we started down that path for about about a week or two, and realized that 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 wasn't going to pan out. Um, but we knew that that the internet was going to be a game changer, and that if we uh, stuck to that domain. Uh, that eventually we would we would uh, find success. The second idea was a um, uh, uh, we were going to do a uh, we had written a piece of software that would automatically generate product catalogs. So I uh, got a, a book of all the catalog companies in the country, and I um, uh, started on the first page, the AAA catalog for auto products and. Um, by the time I had uh, uh, gotten about five hours into it, I had six companies that wanted to put their catalog on the Internet. This was 1995. And granted, this was a 500-page book. So I, I, I called Dave up. I said, Dave, you know, we're, 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 we're going to be rich here. I called, called my other partner, Brad, up. I said, you know, this, this, is, this is a slam dunk. And um, uh, called continued to call for another uh, four days and couldn't get another person that was interested. So uh, maybe it was uh, luck or maybe it was just that, uh, that enthusiasm you get when you first, when you first call somebody. Um, so that business ended up uh, not panning out. And then uh, uh, very quickly after that, we started helping corporations with, uh, with their Internet strategy and actually deploying their, their, um, uh, their online presence. So when you had these first couple of misfires, like how long – you know, how much did you have to invest and how long did you spend on them before you kind of, you know, washed your hands and moved on to the next thing? It was probably about a, a month or two. Um, you know, granted, at the same time, we were learning what it, uh, uh, how to set up an IP stack on our, our machines and, um, you know, setting up a, a Spark server. It was, you know, it was, um, we weren't just figuring out the business model. We were also figuring out, you know, how to execute on uh, deploying things on the Internet. Um, <clears throat> so it was, it, was, it was an iterative process. And so you were kind of playing around with these different products, and then it sounds like in a way you went back to what you were doing, right? Consulting, except with your own company, uh, and, and focused on the web. It, it, exactly. Um, I had some some prior consulting clients from my days when I was an Ernst and Young consultant that uh, that wanted to to do business with us, 
And uh, we, we went and talked to a lot of publishing companies, advertising agencies, and big corporations. And there being in New York was a big advantage. Uh, last I checked, there's over over $150 billion-plus companies based here. So there's a lot of companies you can reach out to. Uh, and we had a big competitive advantage. We owned suits. So we knew how to talk to them. We knew how to present in a way that, uh, that, that uh, differentiated us from everyone else who was doing anything on the Internet at that time. Uh, so we were able to, to land these corporate clients and grow organically um, off of uh, uh, through revenue and just keep funding it, pumping, pumping that back into the business and growing. Uh, in 1995... Uh, I made twelve thousand dollars in Manhattan and lived on macaroni and cheese. So you know it doesn't it doesn't uh, you don't need a lot of money to start a business if you're uh, early on if if you're have clients who are willing to pay you. So did you did you have to invest money into it or was it just the twelve thousand to get by and. Uh uh, it, it was, it was, um, we invested a couple thousand dollars, less than $10,000 in the business. Uh, I remember because we, we um, had to buy the Spark server, and that was the big expense. But I would say the, the, the bigger investment came from uh, people like our parents who, you know, gave us enough macaroni and cheese to live on. <laughs> and, um, uh, and that was, you know, that was, that was, and people who, who were, um, Supportive of our cause and would, would bring us office supplies and things that we need to to, to grow the business. Um, from but um, you know it was it was it was lean times early on. And how do you go about? You know, a lot of people are very wary of consulting businesses. There are even a lot of people out there who give advice to stay away from consulting because they say you know it doesn't scale. You'll always just worried about you know paying salaries and having a little you know whatever little commission you get on that. You know what was it that that got you excited about it, and you know what, what you do to start to scale that up beyond yourselves? Well, I think that that's accurate. Uh, consulting companies are, are not particularly good businesses. Uh, there's only 24 hours in a day, and you can only hire so many good people so quickly. Uh, we were able to scale through uh, through organic growth and through through merger. Eventually, we were a 1,200 person company, um, and the, the the internet was so new and exciting that it could support. Um, uh, valuations that were inconsistent with historic consulting company valuations. Uh, so, so we did very well. But uh, throughout the growth of the company, we, we were constantly looking at you know, how do you um, transition to a product-oriented uh, um, or an, more annuity-oriented work uh, so that you weren't um, enslaved by uh, the tyranny of needing man- more man hours. And when did when did you personally kind of go from the mode of just selling your hours to you know to doing all the other pieces, hiring people, selling lots of other people's hours, or were you always kind of captured in that piece of it? Well, I, was, I guess I was very fortunate. I had a, a great mentor when I was a management consultant, and he billed four hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and uh, you know that that impressed me as a, as a young kid. And and uh, he said to me one day, he says, "You know, we don't make money when I bill hours." And it kind of surprised me. I thought, wow, you know, this guy's billing $450 an hour. Don't we want to bill him more? He says, you know, we make money when you build up bill hours, pointing to me. And um, uh, and that's when it kind of dawned on me, the the, the, the job of of, uh, of a founder or of a manager of a, of, a, uh, of a consulting company is you know, not to bill his hours. It's to figure out processes and procedures and, and staffing so that uh, it's scalable. So very quickly tried tried to get out of the um, out of the, the the hour billing business and into the growing the business. 
So tell me, how did it progress then uh, when, when you did kind of the first merger and then kind of on from there to exit? What was, what was that experience like? Well, um, I'm a believer that you only get to sell your business once, so you should do it often. And what I mean by that is uh, it's, it's a defining transaction. It, it's, it's incredibly important transaction. And um, as a result, we, wanted to, we, we did dry runs, so to speak. You know, we, we had a couple offers to buy the business over the years. And uh, we, you know, we would fully explore it and, and, and go through it. And, and, uh, and we were you know, always prepared to walk away from the deal. And um, uh, by the time that uh, uh, Proxycom had approached us, um, we, we uh, uh, understood um, you know, how, how to position the business and how to negotiate the deal. And, and, and we were really impressed with the team um, uh, at, at Proxycom, and, and we merged. Uh, and uh, uh, shortly after that, um, started, I started uh, Mimeo, and shortly after that, we, we went public. So I guess you kind of disengaged from the consulting company to start, to start a new company? Yes. And what, what was behind that? <clears throat> well, I had, um, uh, as, a, as a management consultant, I had found I spent a lot of time in front of the copy machine. Um, and uh, it, it struck me as not being a particularly good use of my time uh, making copies. So back actually in 1992, I had uh, gotten together with Dave uh, Utendale, and we had mapped out a business to produce documents by uh, uh, taking them directly from your laptop and sending them to a centralized production facility, and um, <clears throat> the uh, you know sort of do- did the data mo- diagrams and thought out the business and and thank goodness we didn't we didn't do it because back in 1992 uh, we didn't have you know the experience but also you couldn't go out and get the twenty thirty or forty million dollars it takes to set up that type of business especially if you're twenty two years old. Um, and uh, the other problem was there wasn't an internet. So this was going to be done with modems. There wasn't enough modems. The digital printing technology wasn't there yet. So it was a bad idea in 1992. But by 1998, it was a great idea. Uh, companies like Stamps.com had, you know, in a period of 18 months, become billion-dollar companies. Uh, there was, a, there was a, 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 an excitement in the air, and people wanted businesses where they could engage them over the internet. And uh, we, we felt copying was ripe for being completely um, changed. And that's what Mimeo does. We, we, we take documents directly, digital documents, we produce them at, uh, built to order at a state-of-the-art facility that's centralized in Memphis, Tennessee, right next to the FedEx hub. So you hit print, goes down, goes to that facility, it's produced perfectly, you can see exactly what it's going to look like, and it's delivered wherever you need it. It's faster, it's easier, it's more convenient, it's usually less, uh, it's more cost-effective than going to your corporate copy center or the copy shop around that corner. So like you said, that's a big idea. When, when you left the consulting company or you know, while you were still there, kind of what, was, what was step one to actually doing this thing? Was it writing the business plan? Was it finding the partners? Was it raising the money? What was kind of step, you know, the very first step there? Well, the first step was I, 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 um, uh, I came across a, a business analyst from AT&T who um, – Really impressed me, and uh, hired him in. Uh, we, we hired him in May um, uh, to analyze the business opportunity and uh, lay the foundation for for a well thought out plan. And the idea was, at the end of the summer, um, we would get together, analyze all the data, and decide whether or not to start this business. So he starts writing in May, and, and about three weeks later, in June, he says, "Guys, we got to get together. This is huge." And he lays out. 
all the data that he had found so far that support that basically said a company like Mimeo needs to exist, and we need to start immediately. So we uh, we started developing code, uh, started assembling the technology team, we started raising money. Um, I had never raised money before, uh, so that that was a, a, an exciting, exciting, exciting time. Uh, um, assembled, we, we we assembled the team, um, uh, and actually, uh, Key Compton was was absolutely integral in that. He he had raised money before when he founded Soulbright. He he was very involved in explaining you know, how to go about that, and uh, really, the idea wouldn't have happened w without him because this was an idea that required outside capital. Uh, you had to build a factory. And and uh, and you had to do it from scratch uh, for for a variety of reasons. It had to be done that way. So <clears throat> um, we uh, we um, built out a, uh, a technology team. It's actually at one point I believe there were forty five developers working on on the technology before we launched. And uh, um, by the beginning of of two thousand, we uh, we were ready to launch. And launched in February of two thousand, right as the market blew up. Hmm. So let's first back up and talk about how you how you're able to kind of put this together and finance it. What was I guess what was the very first capitalization of the company, and also um, in that very first plan on paper, how much did you think it was going to cost? Uh, we 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 asked, uh, our original financing plan was to do a twenty five uh, a twenty million dollar uh, round of financing. Uh, and then a three or four hundred million dollar financing in preparation for a billion dollar plus public offering, and that sounds crazy today, but in in 1999 it just seemed about right. And um, <clears throat> we uh, we did a bridge note uh, that converted into that first ended up being a 21 million dollar round uh, with that we did with uh, Draper Fisher, uh, Draper Fisher Gotham, uh, uh, Hewlett Packard, and uh, and our and our angel investors who 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 were in the bridge. Um, and um, uh, uh, that, how much that, money came in before you did that uh, that larger Series A bridge? The bridge was a uh, was a five million dollar bridge. Uh, so of the uh, twenty one million dollars, five of it was, was angel, ma mainly angels, uh, in in the bridge structure. And the bridge was sort of the classic, what's now today much more classic, a you twenty know, percent discount um, to to the to the Series A type. Okay, cool. And, that, and then that first day where you were, had built everything, I guess built the code, built the factory, ready to launch, how much had you burnt, how much was still in the bank? Um, I, don't, I don't remember exactly, uh, but I do remember that uh, at that point we, we had assumed if we turn it on, immediately everyone's going to want to come to it. Uh, and um, uh, we also were gearing up for a big marketing push. You know, like man, many of the companies of the era, uh, it, it seemed it, – it, you know, given how the the capital markets were working, it seemed like the right way to, to move forward. So we had uh, much more marketing infrastructure than than we had uh, than we really needed at that point. We really needed to to experiment more um, before we started gearing up for that type of marketing spend. <clears throat> and on the sales side, we probably didn't have enough sales infrastructure uh, from from the beginning. From the, the the first day we wrote the business plan, our approach was 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 to attack the market in, uh, on two flanks. One through a marketing approach to, to small and mid-sized businesses and individual consultants, and the second through a direct sales force to to approach sort of the, the largest four or five thousand companies uh, in an, in a named account strategy. Um, and when we when we launched, we definitely had you know, more marketing infrastructure than we needed and less sales infrastructure. So tell me, I guess uh, you know, I think the biggest thing when people recall those days is just as much as there was a change in 
reality, just a change in mindset. You know, so how is that affecting everybody as the market was kind of coming apart? You know, and the the heroes of yesterday, the pets dot com, all of a sudden look like uh, shams. Well, um, I, I think that uh, we had a couple big advantages. One is um, we had a highly scalable business. Um, we had a, a real business problem that that people needed to be solved needed to be solved, and we had a huge market. Um, you know, over twelve billion dollars is spent just in the in retail copy shops. Uh, pro- probably digital copying globally is north of fifty billion dollars. It's a huge, huge market. Um, so when you have a huge market that's also growing, um, you know that 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 really helps you. Um, I don't know if that answers your question though. Oh, so so how did that that um, uh, relate to the, the pets dot com and the other other business models out there? We had a high value product, and um, uh, when you're shipping uh, four dollars worth of dog food and twenty dollars worth of shipping, that doesn't make sense. When you're shipping a document which is going to help you land a $30 million account, you're onto something. Um, and you've got a lot more room to, 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 to play with, uh, both in, you know, in, in the value of your transaction um, and a much larger market uh, to, to, to target. So I think that helped. I think also we, we realized uh, very early on that the market had shifted. Our, uh, our CFO, John Delbridge, had, had come from um, Solomon Brothers. He had been an analyst. Uh, we, we, you know, we're in Manhattan. We kind of, you know, see see what's happening in the markets. You can't go to a star- Starbucks without running into a hedge fund manager. So, so you, um, you know, we we saw the market was shifting very quickly, and and we responded very quickly. Uh, we we implemented um, uh, headcount reduction, you know, uh, very quickly, and I think you know ultimately that helped helped save the company. Um, you what know, was that like? Was it like a ten percent or fifty? Like what what order of magnitude did you start to cut things by? Well, it certainly wasn't uh, as fast as it could have been or should have been in hindsight. Um, you know, I think I think you know when in doubt, um, you, you have to move. You know, in fairness to everyone, you have to have to move quickly. Um, you know, in the end, we went from 135 people down to 65 people, and during that same period of time, we hired about 20 new people um, in in uh, in the sales side uh, and sales related activities. So. Um, yeah, that's a that's that that total transition probably took a good twelve thirteen months. Uh, so, what was your life like during those twelve months? Well, it was a, it was a, it was a tough time. Uh, you know, we knew we didn't have enough money to get to profitability, and we had a business model where um, we had a factory, and you know, the first day of the month there's a quarter million dollars gone just to turn on the lights, uh, and uh, uh, so that that year was spent um, groveling for for financing. And uh, you know it was probably, you know, I think I've been involved in over a hundred million dollars of, of, of financing over the years, and that twelve million dollar tranche, that that B round, was was easily the hardest uh, ever. Uh, it was it was a it was a tough year, tough times. So how low did you ever? What's the lowest you ever got with your bank account there in terms of uh, money left in, and how how close did the call get? Uh, it, it definitely, you know, it, we, we played some chicken. We we. Uh, we, we played it close. I think um, not as close as, as Square Earth, though. I mean, Square Earth, we were we were um, pumping every penny back into the business. So, you know, when you had money in in the bank account, you were growing slower. So we would literally, you know, we, we we had days where we would go and you know sit in the office of AIG to get them to pay us quicker. 
uh, because that money we wanted to pump it back into the business as, as quick as, as possible. Uh, City Mag, I remember, you know, they were they were they were great great work, really interesting, huge projects, but they were not particularly quick at paying us, uh, so that that slowed us down. Um, and um, um, but at, uh, at at Mimeo, you know, much, much bigger bigger dollars, and uh, and we, we probably didn't didn't play it as close as at, as at Square Earth. <clears throat> so uh, so going through that, what was what was it like on the equity side? Uh, did, did you have to take a big hit for that Series B? Well, I think uh, uh, um, everyone who invested um, uh, has done and will do very well w- with Mimeo. Um, you know, certainly the B was not at the valuation that anyone would have expected, and it was a down round. Um, so you know, it's that, that's a uh, a tough conversation to have. But in in 2001, when everything's blowing up, uh, I think that uh, uh, our our investors are should be should be pleased. Uh, the investors that stuck with it should should uh, should be very pleased with how everything came out. And what is it? I you know I guess it's uh, it's something that that's interesting to talk about now since uh, some people would say it's repeating itself. But as you were kind of going out over those twelve months, you know what really made the difference in kind of from that first month that you were trying to raise your series, the next tranche of financing to the 12th or 13th when you actually did it, uh, was that you got better at the pitch, that the business fundamentals got better, what, you know, was kind of the essence of that? Well, I think early on, um, you know, we had, we had the top bankers explaining to us how, as part of filing the S3, we would be doing a $200 million financing. And um, uh, the... You know, going into that second round of financing, we had people who who were, who were ready to give us money very early, short, very quickly after we we did our first round of financing, and um, you know, at, as a board, as a team, um, we decided that we would we would wait because we felt there were better deals, and you know, we had we had uh, some pretty nice term sheets on the table, and we also had top bankers saying, oh, well, you know, let us help you with the next round. I was ah, you know, we'll 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 move slower. So I think. The the big thing um, w- was we when we had money, and we thought things might not be going as uh, as quick as we thought. We should have uh, raised the money as quick as possible, and and uh, I think everyone would have done better um, uh, as as a result of that. Um, the pitch itself, I think the the yeah sure we you know we had more data to work with. We could we had more data to support how the business was great. But it was it was a, a nuclear winner, um, you know. They're just everyone was was uh, worried about their own portfolio. They weren't they weren't making new investments. Uh, you know, eventually, um, our existing investors came through, and and we were able to uh, keep the business going. And how are you spending your your time personally over this period? How are you kind of breaking it up between raising money, between operations, sales, et cetera? Well, if I if I recall, my memory of two thousand uh, of, of early two thousand one was um, pitching to raise money and firing people. I, I don't think m- much. You know, there was there was a little bit of uh, improving this, you know, optimizing the sales, uh, but um, but a lot of it, you know, it was a, it was an ugly time. Um, but I think I think having gone through uh, Square Earth, where where we were we were um, just really scrappy, investing everything we could back into the business. Um, and managing cash very tightly uh, gave a, a sort of confidence of you know how do you run a business on cash and, and how do you really watch cash 
Uh, and um, uh, I think that that helped make that period perhaps a little little easier to, to, to make headway on. So you raised your Series B, and what happened from there with Mimia? Well, the business continued to grow, and uh, um, you know, the business just kept growing. It's it's a it's a really simple business in that people who try it love it. It's a wonderful service. They love it, and they come back. Um, now these are printed documents, so you can't you can't get them to use it more than they need it. And what I what I mean by that is. Um, no matter what deal I give you, you're not going to print in extra board books or extra training material. You only need a certain amount. So you have to constantly get more clients if you're going to want to grow, even though your existing clients keep using your service. So existing customers keep using the service. They're very satisfied. We keep adding more on top of it. The company continues to grow. And we've, we've been on the Inc. 500 and the Inc. 5,000. It's a fast-growing company. still is to this day. And how's it, uh, how's it going cash flow-wise? Is it... When did it reach, or has it reached uh, break even? Well, we don't. We, I'll uh, I'll um, uh, I'll leave it to the CEO to talk about that. But um, I will say that um, it's a it's a it's a nice business. It's growing very quickly, and um, we invest back into the business because we think we're still just scratching the surface. Even at 650 people, even at 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 a, a much higher level of of um, um, brand recognition and account penetration. We're still just scratching the surface of, of what's out there. Um, businesses produce a lot of documents. And how how they competitive environment shape up for that? I guess uh, I think was Mimeo the first one to do that? In 2000, it seemed like there was 100 competitors. Um, but uh, uh, with time, they changed their business model or disappeared. Uh, we like to think that we're, we're the leader in the space. And um, you know, certainly... Uh, uh, the Kinko's brand has a lot more recognition, and they do have an offering uh, that's online. Um, and uh, you know, we, we run into them, and uh, we, we find that we beat them. So um, uh, you know, I would say that, that that's probably the, 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 the product that people are most familiar with. Uh, that said, you know, we're, we're growing very, very quickly. Uh, I think since FedEx acquired Kinko's, it's been de-emphasized. And um, uh, and you know FedEx is a great partner, so so you know they're an important important part of our business is being at the FedEx hub. So I would say that um, uh, you know yes we compete, but we also work together. Hmm. Do you ever worry about the relationship with FedEx that you know maybe if there are two things to ship and it's a question of what gets on the uh, the plane first? No, no, no. They're 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 a great. They're very very well run operation. Great. So, uh, so I guess my, you know, one of the last questions I have about Mimeo, um, going back to what you were saying with kind of spending on marketing versus sales, I think, you know, the kind of biggest challenge for any entrepreneur is always getting the business. So how, how do you find as it evolved, you know, what percentage of your business came through actually having someone pick up the phone and say, hey, you should use Mimeo versus just doing marketing and wherever you guys do marketing to attract small businesses or other people who could use your service. Yeah. Well, I think what, what um, Mimeo focuses on what we call career critical documents. So you know, these are, these are, uh, this is your presentation to, to, to your board. This is your, uh, big, um, big RFP. Uh, so, so, um, you know, we had visions that people would just hear about us, uh, and immediately start using the service. Uh, but what we found is is it does take a little little handholding sometimes, and um, 
what we found is actually talking with a customer um, at some point really differentiates ourselves and really, really locks them in. So uh, percentage-wise, I, I, I don't have those numbers off the top of my head, but I will say that um, as a general rule, by, by investing the time to talk to customers and potential customers and provide a little bit, you know, just a little bit better service than what people are used to, and uh, you really stand out. And, and to this day, Mimeo uh, is very committed to, to exceptional service. Uh, you know, with dozens of, of metrics we use, and um, uh, and, and and customer sat- satisfaction surveys. You know, we want happy customers, and uh, and I like to, you know, unfortunately, a company that provides better service is really unique. To, you know, not just in printing, but but in uh, uh, across the board. So, so what happened uh, to you personally is you kind of, as Mimeo was growing, when did you start to disengage from being the CEO? Well, the, um, uh, from the beginning, I was always looking for a, uh, for, for a CEO. Um, I think it took a while to understand what we were looking for in a CEO. Um, so probably our, our, our efforts to find a CEO were, were uh, premature. Um, that said, I believe that the skills it takes to get a company from the back of an envelope to $10 million in revenue is very different than the skills that it takes to go from 10 to $100 million. Um, and maybe from $100 million to a billion. But, but uh, uh, I think probably around the time we started to reach $10 million in revenue, it became a lot less interesting for me. It's harder to have uh, as profound an impact on the business. And... Uh, and it's outside my, my, my sweet spot. I like that early, you know, the chaos of of uh, starting the business and and that bringing order to that, and uh, um, you know all the excitement that goes with it, the adrenaline. So so specifically, uh, it would have been around two thousand four when I started uh, exploring other business models. Um, and um, was that where you still the CEO at that point, or had you already? No, we br- we brought in a CEO. And um, uh, I was sort of doing uh, all sorts of you know, some business development and some product development um, and uh, some some um, building out the sales organization. Um, but the but my passion was was starting to look at the next business and um, <clears throat> uh, came to the realization that it's a lot easier to start a business if you already have customers. So. Uh, what I did was, again, it's great being in New York City, went and talked to uh, several senior-level executives and said, I'm, interested, I'm thinking of starting a company. What would you like? Um, and uh, uh, I think this approach was, was very well received. Um, you know, several people said, yeah, everyone always tells me what I need. No one ever asks. And, uh, and no one's ever offered to start a company or an industry around something that I think I need. So I was talking to the uh, the head of investor relations at a Fortune 50 company, and she she told me that uh, she was concerned about this 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 internet thing with all these blogs. There's all this information showing up on feeds and, and alternate news sources, and and she didn't know what you know. She knew there was important information out there, but um, uh, she didn't know how to, to monitor it. And uh, and and then she said the magic words that she would be willing to pay for a service that would monitor this. So. I figure when someone at a multibillion-dollar company says they're willing to pay you, that that's a good starting spot. So did, did more research and um, uh, uh, built a system 
that uh, that a very simple system that monitored um, feeds and blogs and updates to websites and went back, showed it to her and said, you know, would you pay for this? And she said, yeah, I, I would. I was like, oh, okay, that, that, that's a good sign too. And I said, well, what do you think you'd pay? She said, yeah, $1,000 a month. Okay, $12,000 a year. That, that makes sense. So I started showing it to other people, um, and uh, they also found it, found it was interesting. But then I started showing it to some of my hedge fund friends, and, and uh, they were like, oh, yeah, we need this. We're all competing on the same information. This is different information. I can make money with this. Um, I, I'll pay for this. Yeah, okay, that's good. And I said, well, how, how much would you pay? So $12,000. Or I said, would you pay $12,000? And they said, yeah, I'd pay $12,000 uh, a month. So after that meeting, I had two more similar meetings with the same result and never talked to anyone but hedge funds again after that. So, so uh, that was the, the genesis of, of uh, Monitor 110. Uh, continued to, 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 to build out the technology, refine the, the – really it was a, a prototype slash alpha version uh, and uh, uh, sh- uh, showed it to, to funds of different sizes uh, and then came across uh, an incredible uh, individual – Roger Ehrenberg, and he really knew, you know, knows hedge funds. And uh, a f- friend introduced us and, and uh, showed them uh, to him, and, and he, 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 he knew that, there, that the uh, hedge funds were all competing on this, with the same information and that differentiated information uh, would be highly valued. So, uh, uh, but he, he was much smarter about it than I was. He went around and we showed it to not different size funds but different styles. So he walked it through to different funds he had done business with, and uh, same response. It was very, very well received. So um, we, uh, we, we we continued to move the business forward, continue investing in technology, and had a, had a, 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 a pretty good alpha version uh, of the product. Um, started getting feedback from customers and um, uh, came to the realization that there was definitely an opportunity here. There's definitely, definitely a market for it. But long-term... Uh, to succeed, we needed to be real time. We needed to be internet scale, and we and we needed um, both Boolean and Bayesian uh, matching system. So we needed, uh, let's say, powerful algorithms. So um, uh, at that point, we we had a choice. We could uh, we limited development resources. I think, and I think one of the one of the um, uh, downfalls of of Manhattan is you know a lot of technical talent. A lot of it, at least back then, locked up in, in financial institutions. So it was, it was slow building out the, the technical team. So we had limited technical resources, and we knew that we needed both a Boolean and a Bayesian uh, uh, matching algorithms. So we made a decision to essentially stop the alpha version and put all our, our, our energies into, into the beta version, or that, the, the next version. Um, so we had a, we had a, a functioning Yugo. But we knew we wanted a Lamborghini, so we put all our energy into, into building a Lamborghini. And I think that was, uh, in hindsight, that was a, a, a major strategic error. Um, you know, if we had we had continued to push and uh, continue to refine our, our 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 initial product, we would have we would have generated revenue and and learned learn more from our customers and and uh, and continue to move forward, and probably uh, you know quite possibly ended up with Lamborghini just as quick. Um, but hindsight's twenty twenty. So uh, um, started building the Lamborghini, building out the team, raising more money. Uh, I think we um, you know, raised close to twenty million dollars, 
and uh, at, at at some point um, realized that um, it was going to take longer than we thought. Now, granted, no one had ever built in an internet scale, real time um, service like this, and um, turned out to be more complex than we had expected. And, and uh, turned out that the the source, the internet, changes. So uh, you 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 your portion of your algorithms have to deal with that and adapt very quickly. So we actually uh, uh, hit a point where we realized it was going to take longer, and we had a tough decision to make. We could, at that point, fire everyone who wasn't involved in making the product better or launching the product, um, or uh, we could hedge. And we, we, you know, we all got together and, um, you know, as, as a board, decided that you know, we, had, we had a lot of money in the bank at this point. Um, we had uh, you know, every, every reason to think that we were, we were on the right track, uh, and we decided to, to, to hedge. So we pulled down our, our venture financing, $2 million of, of, of venture financing available to us, and we, uh, and we, we, we hedged, and we, we, imp- we started launching some other products. Um, and uh, it turned out that, that, that you know, the distraction of having multiple products um, and the dis- uh, the, the, the Having a you know a bigger team than you know having people working on multiple things slowed us down even further. So uh, you know that second decision to to sort of when we should have you know, tightened up and really focused, uh, I think was was the other was the second um, strategic failure. And I think we could have probably recovered from either one, but both uh, it turned out not 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 uh, uh, not to work. So we, we we eventually got a product that was pretty amazing. We we, we hit hit. Um, Incredible technical milestones, and we were out. We started showing it to customers, but um, uh, at that point, our our burn rate was was quite high, and our infrastructure costs were high. I mean, we had a hundred machines chewing through data in real time, and and the, just the cost of those machines and the and the and the team to just keep things running uh, was was pretty substantial. And we realized that um, we were gonna have, we were gonna need. Um, an uncertain and substantial amount of additional funds to move forward. We still had money in the bank, but we felt that uh, uh, it w- we weren't going to be able to get the valuation that was going to make it attractive for everybody, and we, we decided to wind down the company in an orderly manner. And it was it was wound down in an orderly manner, um, but it was you know, cer- certainly unfortunate and certainly uh, certainly painful. Um, uh, I, at that point, I had um, we had brought in a, a CEO um, who done did a great job executing with the resources resources that he had uh but it was uh um uh i had i had moved on to my next business but it was um you know e- e- even even when you're not involved day to day it's still painful to shut shut a business down but ho- hopefully it was a, a good learning experience and uh as my friend says if you're not you know if you're not swinging for, for the fences uh then then you're not you know then you're not pushing the limits so you said there were two strategic errors, and uh, you know, I guess they sounded good at the time in the boardroom, and uh, everyone sat there and agreed. Do you feel like, uh, you know, like it was kind of unavoidable? Like, you know, was your was your gut off, or did you have like a gut instinct telling you to do one thing, and just kind of when you're in that boardroom and group think takes over, you did something aside from what your gut was telling you to do? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think. Um, when your your gut can say one thing, but when you're in business with other people, you need to you know, you, you you need to come to a bit of a consensus. And and um, uh, you know, I think I think that um, 
having a stru- when we made this decision, we had a structure where we didn't really have uh, a CEO. You know? There were aspects of the business that uh, I was running. There were aspects of the business that Roger was running. You know, there were aspects of the business where I was more experienced. There were aspects of the business where Roger was much more experienced. So you had you had a, a, a an environment where um, we were we were not being decisive, and we were we were perhaps being more collaborative. Uh, and I think that had had we uh, moved quicker um, uh, and been more decisive, we, we probably would have we, w- we would have um, done much better. So it's an interesting comparison then to draw draw to Mimeo, where where you also had kind of adversity and overcame it. Did you have more of a kind of clear structure at Mimeo? Like, what was it about Mimeo that let you? React to the market market quickly enough to survive and you know overcome all these challenges. Well, I think I think at Mimeo um, the um, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I think the the difference was uh, at Mimeo we knew that the market had changed and the capital was going to be a problem. And 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 that was driving you know driving the decision. In the case of uh, of Modern One Ten, it wasn't so clear. We had uh, very uh, good um, backers, um, and we had very good customers who who were throwing around you know large sums of money. Um, so uh, the the um, you know there was there was good there was good reason to you know sort of swing for the fences. Um, you know, so that that certainly that certainly played into our decision process. So I don't know if that really answers your question. So I guess it kind of turns the question on its head, right? It was kind of adversity that that drove Mimeo and lack of adversity that um, that might have been an impediment to Monitor One Ten. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that or, or lack of perceived adversity. I mean, I think um, you know, Roger does a, did a great blog post on this. You know, we had. Uh, you know, we had, we, had, we were on the cover of the Financial Times, the front page of the Financial Times, saying how great great we were. You know, we had uh, some of the the most prestigious hedge funds in the world telling us how we were on the right track. So we couldn't let them down. We had to give them that Lamborghini. Uh, we were, we were afraid to to, to to hurt our reputation, and um, and I think that uh, uh, that hurt us in the end, um, as as Roger uh, pointed out um, uh, so articulately. I think in the case of of, of Mimeo, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of respect for for the historic printing business, and we didn't really care what they thought of us. Um, you know, we we were servicing a wide range of customers, and we felt we had something that was innovative, and we, you know, we we're gonna we we're gonna you know launch it whether people realize it or not. So we didn't have like a reputation to protect, uh, and um, uh, I think that helped. Um, it's it's e- it's easy to let great get in the way of good, and in the case of Monitor 110, we 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 put our you know put our energies into launching that amazing Lamborghini when we should have we probably should have been a little more modest and 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 uh, uh, um, launch with something uh, something less grand. Hmm. So there were uh, so there were a lot of differences with Monitor 110 from your past ventures and. You know, a lot of things kind of influencing what happened, and you realize the mistakes. But did it change how you do business? Like, did you kind of walk away from that situation saying, "Oh man, I've got these you know three rules of business now that I didn't have before that I'm always going to follow"? I think I think uh, two two big takeaways from that um, is uh, 
I, I no longer believe in, in um, what I call hell Mary business models, you know, where you're going to spend uh, a year or, or nine months or, or a year and a half building technology, uh, uh, kind of like passing the football and expect it to be caught in the end zone. You know, what, you know, that's too long not to be talking to customers. In the case of Mimeo, uh, we, you know, we had, we had a, 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 an 18 month period where we were heads down just building software, 45 people building software. Um, that's a long time not to be to interacting with customers. Now, you, now the markets at that point and the cost of capital supported that. But I, I think in hindsight, even with, 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 with Mimeo, we probably could have done something a little more modest um, and, and um, you know, got a little bit of, of, of customer uh, experience and sales experience under our belt and gone into 2000. Um, you know, perhaps it would have delayed our, our launch of the grand product a little bit, but it would have accelerated our what I call research and development related to, to sales. We would have learned more about how to sell it. So uh, my, 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 my new, what I learned was no Hail Mary uh, technology development efforts. You got you to be out interacting with customers fast, early, and often. Uh, I think the second, the second takeaway uh, is um, uh, capital. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of ways to, to, to make money starting businesses uh, and, and, and service customers. You know, there's just tons and tons of, of innovative ideas out there. And, um, but there aren't enough people who can execute on them. You know, management teams who have the passion, uh, uh, fire in their belly, and, and work ethic that are, that are going make it, to make it work. Um, so uh, my, my philosophy is, given that there's so much opportunity out there, why not focus on business models that aren't so capital intensive? Um, you know, you, 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 you know, um, uh, you know, by, by staging the investment so that it's, you know, after you're profitable or as you're closer to break even, or doesn't occur from, you know, it's it, the investment comes in the form of reinvestment of profits or through financing terms from your suppliers or, or through other, you know, means, um, uh, that can make a lot of sense. Now, I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying that venture capitalism makes sense. There there are lots of reasons to to involve venture capital. I'm just saying that that getting in a situation where you're so reliant on such uh, so reliant on capital raises um, is risky and I think often unnecessary. <laughs> so that's interesting. So you draw the same lesson from both the uh, the case where it worked out in the end and the case where it didn't. Yes. Yep. So, so uh, I guess the the next logical question. Uh, so, you, you know, you have these lessons. You disengage from uh, Monitor One Ten, or at least from an executive role, the same way you did Mimeo. What? Where the next idea? You know, where where that percolate? Where to come from? Um, well, it it um, I think I think one, one it came from an observation that um, there is a need. For business to move faster, you know, as a business owner, I was always frustrated with how slow um, other businesses and suppliers worked, and I felt that uh, there, there, if you could, if you could launch services that were that were more responsive and faster, uh, you you could grow very quickly and provide a lot of value. Um, I kind of look to the analogy of, of Easy Group in, in Europe, and they, they launched uh, lots of companies. Um, but all around the idea of making it simpler, or um, uh, you know, I th- so I think there's there's a, a lot of opportunities around the idea of of being more efficient with your customers' time, 
so I so I launched a, a, a company called um, Urgent Group um, to really explore different business models around providing services that are just more efficient with our customers' time. And the, the first the first thing that that uh, uh, that that we we came up with as we researched this is is um, and who's we by the way? I have a uh, at the time I had. Uh, uh, it was a small team of, of you know, really bright people who could you know, track down information and analyze it and, and dig into different business ideas. And um, <clears throat> uh, all, always felt very passionate about you need to get great people. So I've always had a passion for, for all things related to, to recruiting and hiring people. Um, you know, I was a member of Shroom back in, in, in college. Uh, just, just very uh, so important to get great people. What is that? It's a Society for Human Resource Management. That's some acronym. Yeah, um, and the um, uh, the the in my experience, the governing factor for growth, especially in business to business companies, is how quickly you can scale the sales team. And it seems like every company I've ever invested in or or been involved in, um, you just couldn't get enough great salespeople fast enough. So this this problem had had plagued me for 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 um, years, and uh, realized that we could use computational linguistics, essentially the, t- the same text analytics technologies that we used in Monitor One Ten, to better find and screen salespeople, account management professionals, business development professionals, people who who have a quota or, or are interacting directly with a client. And um, as we dug into it more, we realized that that. Uh, not only was was this a huge need, but the current success rate for traditional approaches to finding and screening uh, account management professionals was was pitiful, L- literally fifty percent. Um, you know, companies like IBM, who 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 have years, de- decades of experience expanding their team, were only able to see, achieve fifty percent success rate in bringing on uh, salespeople. At, e- even at Mimeo, I mean, you look at look at our the costs. Um, a lot of the venture dollars went to to hiring salespeople who didn't work out. You know, the ones that worked out paid for themselves pretty quick, but the, the ones that failed sucked money out of the business. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to apply uh, the, the, the certainty of computational linguistics to the problem of finding and screening salespeople? And that's what, what – uh, so we launched Urgent Career, and that's what Urgent Career does. We find and screen salespeople. We actually um, interview them by phone – transcribe the conversation and then analyze the conversation uh, using pattern recognition and scoring on different dimensions so that we can figure out what type of environment is that salesperson going to be or account management or business development professional going to be most successful. Are they great at negotiating? Are they great at servicing? Are they great at qualifying? Is it prospecting that's their strength? You know, are they empathetic? Are they persuasive? These are things that can be measured through machine learning. And um, and that's what we're doing. So we're, we've we've set out to pioneer this, and and uh, we think we're going to completely change the way people hire sales, account management, and business development professionals. So is the idea that you figure out if someone's good or not, or the idea that you just kind of figure out where they're going to fit best? You know, be it you know pre-sales or it really has to be both. Um, you, you know, be, there are there are people who are. Good at sales that will fail in in certain environments. You know, the the the, I think that uh, especially in startups, um, there's a a view that there's a certain personality to sales. Well, there's there's so much more to it. 
you know, different types of customers, different sales processes, uh, different buying behavior, um, different value propositions require different skill sets, uh, different aptitudes, different interests. So, so uh, matching those is, is a core part of it. And then, of course, there's just, are they any good at sales? And there are a lot of people out there who, who claim to be involved in account management and business development that really should, should, would be best served employed elsewhere. Uh, so we try to f- we we try to find those, and I think we so far we've been pretty successful in in screening those types of people out. Our our clients um, are are very pleased. We have uh, several Inc. 500 companies, TechCrunch companies, TechCrunch 40 companies, and we're really focusing on on fast growth companies. And uh, so far they're pleased, and we're 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 growing. They're growing, and uh, it seems to be working. And there are. Um there's so many things that go into into being a good salesperson. You know, there's ethics. There's is this guy going to be the one who stays up two nights, you know, two hours a night more than the next guy, or is he the guy who knows fifty more people? It seems like you know there are just so many things to account for. Uh, how, how do you kind of add value? You know, with just all those factors out there. Well, there's 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 lots of factors. Um, now it tends to boil down to for any given sales role to a handful of, of factors. So we're, we're still building the algorithms and improving the systems and the workflow and the, and the, and, and the technology, but we've identified about 32 key dimensions of, of what we'll call sales compatibility. And uh, for any given role, it's really that... This sounds like an eHarmony ad it right does, now. It does, doesn't it? Um, but it's very similar. You know, it's, 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 um, you know there, there, there are important attributes that matter, and sometimes... Those attributes don't matter. So for any given role, it really boils down to a handful, and I mean you know, less than 10 attributes that are most important to get, to get a fit, to get the optimal fit. Maybe not a perfect fit, but the, but the best fit you can with, with given the situation. Um, and, um, uh, and we look to, you know, to, to score on all those dimensions, but then figure out what's, what are the ones that matter for, for a given role to get the best fit. So, how much have you capitalized this company, and how what's the what's the headcount now? So there's there's um, there's ten of us, uh, and um, uh, I've I've mostly f- funded it myself up until about a week ago, uh, when we did a uh, a small uh, angel round, uh, which I think is is good for a company to do. I think that you build a better business when you have outside investors. Um, the 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 discipline um, of of uh, having those investors, I think, causes you to to be more thorough and think through things, and it and it and it creates a base of people you can turn to who are looking out for your interests and the interests of the company. Uh, so uh, so we did that. Haven't announced that. Uh, and see, now you're doing two <laughs> breaking two things in, in one go. week. And how much did you raise? <clears throat> we didn't say, but it's you know, um, six figures. And uh, you know we are generating revenue. We don't have large capital requirement needs, but I think you know, like I said, I think you build a better company when you have outside investors. So how how do you go about deciding the amount to raise, and, and you know what kind of valuation? Because here it's, um, I imagine you probably well, well, how did it work? Did you set the terms? Did they set the terms? How do you do that when it's uh, you know it's an angel round as opposed to a bunch of VCs tossing uh, down term sheets? Well, I think um, <clears throat> I think that um, uh, the one of the reasons that we we raised outside money is we have an option pool, and it's unfair for the founder to set the valuation for an option pool. 
Uh, it's also unfair to the founder for him to be you know, putting more money in all himself um, uh, when there's an option pool. So, so you really need a, a, a proper capital structure if you're going to have a real option pool, and we want to have a real option pool. So um, uh, there are a, there's a philosophy that says you should raise money at whatever the highest valuation you can get. And I, I don't believe in that. I think that it's much more important to have the right investors, <clears throat> uh, and it's important that they do well. You know, this isn't, you know, the way you, you uh, get, uh, the way you create wealth is by creating wealth for everybody and building a great company, uh, not squeezing the best deal you can out of your potential investors. In the case of, uh, of, of Mimeo, you know, we actually had term sheets for the Series A round at higher valuations. And we chose to go with Draper Fisher uh, and Draper Fisher Gotham because, because we were impressed by them and they had a great reputation. And, uh, um, we felt that that uh, uh, long term they would be the ones to to, to go with, and uh, thank goodness we did that. You know, although we got a slightly lower valuation on our Series A round, they they stuck with us, and you know they'll do well. But but the company would not exist if we had had sort of a Johnny Come Lately Tier Two VC backing us. Um, so so my belief is you find the right people, and you you give them a, uh, you offer a fair valuation, you negotiate with them. And um, uh, and and you know uh, that's how you build wealth for everybody. And who are the lead investors in your round? Uh, it's re- it's really um, uh, individuals that I've done business with that that I've been impressed with who who can add value through um, outside perspective and um, and relationships and and sort of sound thinking. So what else are you doing now? You're uh, urgently working on urgent career. Are you? Are you urgent about anything else right now? Well, as um, you know, as we were talking about earlier um, b- before the interview, I'm, I'm uh, I I think that I, I'm I'm very consumed by by launching Urgent Career. It's it's uh, you know launching a business is is uh, a, a Herculean effort. It's it's you have to you know just spend a lot of man hours thinking about it. I don't think there's any way around that. Um, that that said, I'm I'm really excited about. Um, the opportunities in green tech uh, and have dabbled in that as, a, as an angel investor uh, have dabbled in that more at the you know more as a science project stage um, <clears throat> but 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 believe that green tech is going to make the telecom bubble and the internet bubble look like a speed bump um, for, for a variety of reasons um, unlike the internet and unlike unlike t- telecom um, um, a lot of green tech is related to energy the energy markets a six trillion dollar market, and um, that's that's a big market. That's a lot of opportunity, and there there are pol- geopolitical factors at work here. There's scarcity I- involved. Uh, there, there there are global trends that make interesting int- uh, 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 energy interesting, uh, including uh, in some cases if you can build a, a cheaper form of energy, uh, you instantly have customers. So um, yeah, that that makes that that makes that aspect of green tech. Very interesting, but I'm also very concerned about global climate change. And this is this is uh, has the potential to drastically change the planet, um, you know, geopolitically, uh, in just in many many dimensions. And um, uh, I'm 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 excited about how technology and capital markets can help solve that problem. And I think that if we can create the right framework, to uh, the right capitalistic framework to support innovation, uh, this problem will get will get solved. Uh, so, so that's something that, that excites me personally, is uh, is is both the business opportunity and the need to to in the green tech space. 
Do you think you can carry forward that same mentality that you'd mentioned before about uh, you know not spending a lot of capital until you launch and get things in front of customers? I mean, that works on consumer web now where it's cheap to develop a product, but do, do you think that uh, green, green tech will follow that same technology? Or will it, like with some companies you've seen, you know, like in solar, just require millions and millions of R&D before you'll ever start to see any kind of return, have this kind of binary outcome? Um, <clears throat> I believe that there are there is plenty of opportunities in green tech that are that can be done in a capital efficient manner. Uh, I think that if you look back to the the dawn of the of the PC industry, um, you know if you if you'd gone into the seventies or the if you'd gone into the eighties thinking oh well only mainframes are the way that you know centralized mainframes are the only way computers are going to work, therefore you need lots of money, uh, you would have missed a lot of innovation. Um, and I think that uh, uh, there are a lot of people, especially in the private equity world, who say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's project finance. That's big money. Uh, I think you know, distributed network systems, I mean, th- th- there, there are a lot of technologies that need to be explored that don't necessarily require the type of capital that, um, uh, that green tech has consumed in the past. That said... From a venture standpoint, I think you know the, the, these large funds will have no problem putting substantial amounts of money to work uh, as these these um, as more entrepreneurs start digging into it. Now, notice I say I didn't say as the technology becomes more developed, or, or uh, it's really I think the, the bottleneck is not enough entrepreneurs digging into this. And I'm encouraged by you know, people like Elon Musk who are who are uh, um, you know launching an automotive company. I mean, you know, it's it's I think I think there's a lot of Startup talent uh, in the tech, in the computer tech, infotech world, that uh, uh, was going to have a heyday in in green tech. Just a matter of convincing them to jump over. Yep. And maybe hiring them to do that through urgent career. But, uh, well, we're, we're really perhaps. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your story. Do you have any other kind of parting thoughts on you know advice to the entrepreneurs out there who are? Uh, Toiling away at management companies or in college. Well, I, th- I think um, I, I just want to say I think it's it's great that you're you're doing these interviews. Uh, I've I've always enjoyed them, and I think that um, you know there isn't um, th- you have to be passionate about startups, and uh, but passion is not enough. You need support. You need other other people who are talking about it and thinking about it. And I think that uh, you know anyone who's who's got the the, the interest and drive to sit through this is, is on the right track. Uh, I think you're 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 really doing a service by making these not necessarily this this interview available, but certainly some of the, you know, some of the ones you've done in the past have, have been very very interesting and important. Uh, and uh, I, I've had people tell me that that they've gotten a lot out of it. So I, I want to thank you for doing this. Oh, appreciate it. And thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story, uh, both the successes, the failures, and the lessons from them. Thank you. That's all for my show with Jeff today. If you're looking to get salespeople for your company, make sure you check out Jeff's site. You can go back to VentureVoice.com to get links for anything mentioned in this show. You can also interact with us uh, in the comments. We had a lot of comments from last week's show with Derek Sivers of uh, CD Baby where he announced what he sold his company for. Please keep those coming. I read the comments. Often the guests will read and interact with you in the comments there too. So it's a great opportunity 
to bounce your ideas off the guests on the show. Venture Voice has been growing. We're now up to about 12,000 subscribers. If you're looking to reach venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, students interested in getting involved in these ventures, contact us about sponsoring the show. I'd like to thank Eddie Lebaton, our associate producer, who helped put this show together for you. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.